This morning we conclude our series on uh, Old Testament postcards with a brief look at the life and ministry of the prophet Isaiah. I learned a lot uh, during this time. I learned how to, uh, I, learned, I learned what 4 a.m. in the morning was like, because that seemed like the only time I could ever get anything done, uh, up here anyway. And I also learned how to cut and paste in my computer, you know, eh, whatever. I've preached this sermon several times in the past three weeks in my truck on my way to work. And sometimes it was good. This morning it wasn't so good as I was coming in. I kind of felt like I was on my way to get the results of a biopsy, you know. <laughs> That's no fun either. Uh, anyway, um, I've had many jobs in my life. I pumped gas at my dad's gas station uh, when I was a teenager. I was a grave digger at Fond du Lac Cemetery in East Peoria. I worked in television broadcasting for four different four different TV stations. You remember the Captain Jinx show? Does anybody remember Captain Jinx and Salty Sam? Yeah, yeah. I got to work on that show. In fact, when I was 19, I got to direct that show. It was a lot of fun. Worked at uh, Channel 25. I made training films in the Army during the Vietnam War. <clears throat> I worked for four years in the Caterpillar Foundry in Mapleton. I pastored a small church for three years in North Pekin, was a school principal for two years in Wilmington, Illinois, a carpenter for six months, and a hardware store manager for 18 years, for which I am about to retire in about six weeks. I suffer from CCD, career choice disorder. <laughs> However, uh, our subject this morning uh, had to face a career choice himself. Isaiah, at a seminal point in his life, made a profound career choice by speaking truth to power to four different kings of Judah. As I drove back and forth this summer, uh, back and forth to work, I, every day I would pass uh, a farm, and there was a dog on this farm that would chase my truck. You ever see animals that chase vehicles? And it would chase my truck down to where the fence on his property ended. And I often wondered, what would he do if he caught my truck? What would he do with it? That's kind of the way I felt when I decided to use Isaiah as my sermon topic. I kind of wondered if I'd bet off more than I could chew, which had turned out to maybe the case. In all of Isaiah's ranging work, I discovered that a man who lived in the rarefied atmosphere of the political elites of his day, he was simply, though, a person who was available. His career choice was, here I am. And I'd like to look at this text. This is a seminal point in his life. This is a, a turning point. And it's in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And you can look at it. Uh, take, we'll take a look at it maybe on, on the screen here. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was lifted, high and lifted up, sitting on a lofty throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy, filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. 
Then one of the seraphim flew with, uh, to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. This text has probably been used and overused at every missions conference that ever was. You know, they would have a great rousing sermon, a great rousing time, and then they would ask for commitment, you know, and and they would always use this text, here am I, send me. But they were just asking for people to make themselves available. But being available sometimes is kind of difficult. Now, it's important for us to know what available means. It means present and ready for use at hand, accessible, capable of being gotten, obtainable, qualified and willing to serve or assist. Well, what placed Isaiah in this, you know, kind of position, this uh, hinge point in his life? What, What brought him there? Isaiah was a descendant of the royal house of Judah, the son of Amos, who was the brother of King Amaziah of Judah. He was well educated and had access to the courts of four different kings. He was a contemporary of the prophets Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Uh, his name actually means the salvation is of the Lord. He was married, married to a woman simply called the prophetess, or as they called her, Mrs. Prophet. Be kind of like saying Tina was Mrs. Pastor. They had two sons, one named Shirjashab, which means a remnant will return. I'm not going to try to pronounce the other man's name, at least not in front of you. Isaiah's ministry spans the years between 740 B.C. and 698 B.C. Now, points of interest about Isaiah and the work of Isaiah, and again, it's just huge and massive. Isaiah's work is divided into 66 chapters, paralleling the division of the entire Bible into 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah contain strong themes of God's judgment, resembling the 39 Old Testament books. While the last 27 chapters of Isaiah focus on uh, comfort and the New Testament quotes Isaiah 66 times, and these last 27 books reflect the 27 books of the New Testament. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 66 times. I thought that was interesting. Surpassed only by the Psalms. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah more than any other Old Testament writer. The Bible goes on to record how, does not record how he died. There is some rabbinic literature that suggests he fell out of favor during the reign of King Manasseh and was martyred by being stuffed into a hollow log and sawn in half. I can see how the call to be a prophet was not a real exciting one. There's a reference in Hebrews chapter 11 that uh, some of the Old Testament saints died in this way, so there may be some truth to the legend about how he was uh, martyred. His writing is considered to be among the most eloquent of the Old Testament scripture, and possibly one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Some have referred to him as the Shakespeare of the Bible. Now, I've always pictured the nation of Israel as being a people living in tents, herding sheep and watching distant mountains glowing with smoke and resounding with peals of thunder. I'm sure that Charlton Heston's portrayal of Moses in the film Ten Commandments had something to do with that. But Isaiah was not a farmer. He was not a sheep herder. He was an urbanite. He lived in the city. He was a city dweller. His ministry focus 
was in and around the city of Jerusalem, and he moved in the influential circles of the political class of that day. And he had the ear of these kings, and I don't know how he found himself there, but he was. After the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was broken up into to, uh, to two different factions, the northern and the southern kingdom. Judah made up the southern kingdom, and the remaining tribes uh, were the northern kingdom. And they were constantly in uh, conflict w- with one another. I would imagine that each division considered themselves to be the true Israel and looked at each other as radicals departing from the true faith. Religious splits have a way of doing that, don't they? But like uh, other northern and southern nations, they also felt like they were the correct one politically as well. This led to constant civil war and unwise alliances with other nations in order to gain the upper hand in an ongoing conflict. It's interesting right now in the wake of our, and I'm not intending to be political, but I mean in the wake of our, uh, the wake of our last election, 50 states have filed petitions with the federal government to secede from the union. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, I just thought that it was interesting in light of what we're talking about with Isaiah. I think it's safe to say that Isaiah was familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, and that was simply the covenant that God made with Abraham on Mount Moriah when he said to him, the nations of the world will be blessed. And that comes from Genesis 22, 15 through 18. But much of what Isaiah saw happening to the nation that he loved, to the home where he lived, what he witnessed in this constant civil war between the kingdoms was a constant falling away into idolatry and brief periods of renewal. Isaiah's prophetic indictment of Judah is summed up in the opening chapter of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. It says this, Listen, O heavens, pay attention, O earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children, who've rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured. Your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Judah was sick with a terminal disease called rebellion. I can imagine that as Isaiah witnessed this, he may have wondered if the entire experiment of God and man was beginning to unravel. Have you ever had a dream that seemed to unravel? Hopes and expectations that have begun to become threadbare? Maybe it was a child that started their life making decisions that could have long-lasting negative impacts. Maybe it was a career that never quite blossomed the way you thought it would. Or a marriage that started in a dream and ended in divorce. As Isaiah saw his home being destroyed by conflict and idolatry. But he also wrote this. You know, in all of this, we might say, oh, woe is me. This is over. It's you know, like you said in one place, he said, I am done, undone. Isaiah saw all of this, but he also wrote this in, uh, in chapter six. It says, uh, chapter 60, it says this, arise Jerusalem, 
Let your light shine for all to see. For the glory of the Lord rises uh, to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. And mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Isaiah found himself between pain and promise. Sounds like the title of a Jane Austen novel, doesn't it? But it's often where we find ourselves as we live out our lives in the kingdom. Between pain and promise. There, would, there are some people who would say that being a Christ follower means that if you send the right amount of money to them, you will get everything you want. I've also heard that if you play country music records backward, you get your job back, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, your girlfriend back. Not necessarily in that order. I try, and I emphasize try because my wife and my family know me better than anyone. I try to keep a positive attitude in life. <laughs> <laughs> but I've come to realize that the expectation of what your life will be can be interrupted and altered sometimes by a frantic phone call or a doctor's diagnosis. I do believe that if you're not going through some degree of trial and testing right now, just wait. I don't know where I heard this statement, but I think it has validity. Opportunity rarely comes gift-wrapped but often comes in a storm. Isaiah was available, present, and ready for use. But being available is risky. It exposes you. And being exposed can be painful. I don't know where I heard this statement, but I, uh, but I, but I, I would like to quote this philosopher. It's, a, it's an important philosopher. You probably have heard of him. Is the Dread, the Dread Pirate Roberts. In speaking to Princess Buttercup from the film Princess Bride, he says this, Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I came to Christ when I was 13 years old watching a Billy Graham crusade on TV. Yeah, I'm one of those. The song, Just As I Am, still just, you know. But it wasn't until I was 25 that I finally made my commitment. You know, how many of us know that there, there are multiple, sometimes multiple exposures to the gospel before someone actually commits their life? I was 25 years old when that happened with me. Those pesky teenage years in between got in the way. As a zealous 20-something in church, as a new convert, I volunteered for everything. Years of Sunday school teaching, traveling to conferences and conventions, wearing a three-piece suit, carrying a big Bible, spending long hours with my pastor, laboring on a church building program. I remember one time he and I were down on the ground gluing PVC pipes together for plumbing. Yes, I was doing all of the volunteering, doing all that, doing all the church work, ignoring my family, putting them in second place or maybe third. You know the code, God first, family second, church third, career fourth, etc., etc., etc. Then the day arrived when our state bishop, who was moving to another state, asked me if I would consider pastoring the small church that we were serving in. Well, of course, that was the pinnacle. That was the zenith. I had arrived. You see, in the tradition I have, the preacher was the star. I mean, that was the, that was the height of what you could do in our church denomination, as being someone who filled the pulpit. 
So anyway, he came and asked me if I want to pastor. I said, well, yeah, I've really, that's, that's it. So I put on my three-piece suit, picked up my large KJV Bible, and stepped into disappointment. I knew the bishop, uh, the, the new bishop that was coming into the state had appointed someone else to be the pastor. So being the good soldier of the, uh, for the cause, I manned up and went back to the trenches. My dream had shattered. Being available can hurt. However, I left the availability door open, and two years later, I walked through it into a three-year pastorate in that small church, which then led to a call to be a church school principal in Wilmington, Illinois. Uh, it's a small town up by Joliet. Uh, we sold everything we had. We literally packed up everything that we owned in a moving truck and did not know where we were going to unload that truck. My life uh, my wife left her job. My daughters had to leave their school and all their friends. We had to give away our dog, Jake, a golden retriever that we had raised from a puppy because their dad wanted to follow his dream. But I did say that we live between pain and promise. Now, I don't want this to be a downer for you today because we do live. There is a promise. Isaiah had a promise, the promise of a great new day, the coming of a king. God would come and intervene in the circumstances of Judah. The promise of comfort for his people. Those of us who are familiar with George Frederick Handel's Messiah will find uh, uh, that his work was inspired by Isaiah. And this text uh, from Isaiah chapter 40 was uh, part of the aria that was in uh, the, the Messiah called Every Valley Shall Be Exalted. And it says this, and, and I take these texts from the King James because they're so poetic. doesn't mean they're any better, but they are poetic. Comfort ye, my people, saith our God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The mouth of the Lord was Isaiah. In this text, God directs Isaiah to tell the people that her sad days are over. The the playing field is being leveled. The curves will straighten out. And the rough places will be made smooth. Have you ever had a rough place in your life? Yeah. If you walked in the door today, you've had a rough place in your life. But the promise is that a day will come when the rough places will be made smooth. God promises comfort for his people. In other words, everything's going to be all right. Romans 8.28 says this in the New International Version. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, back to the saga of the pain and the promise of Dinkins' family. Now, I want to pause here and say right now, I I hope you probably don't think this sermon's more about me than it is about Isaiah, but that's the only way I have to identify. How do you identify with a guy who wrote Isaiah? How do you identify with a guy who could speak to four kings and they listened? So this is how I identify with him. 
We left Wilmington, where we were up there. Chris got her old job back. We got our another house, but we didn't get her dog back. And there definitely wasn't a girlfriend to get back. I don't remember when it started, but everywhere I looked, I began to see 828. Everywhere. It seemed that every time I looked at the microwave clock, the time said 828. The announcer on the radio would always say, it's 828. Um, <laughs> it seemed like when I'd turn on the radio, it's 828. You know? And everywhere I looked, I saw 828. And I don't intend to try to explain this, but I finally was convinced when I brought my Chevy, bought my Chevy, uh, Chevy Silverado pickup. Yes, I did get my pickup back. And applied for the license plates. Now, I've never been into message license plates or any of that thing. So I just applied and was content to get whatever I got. Uh, you guessed it. The plate's 828. Can't explain that, but I guess I don't have to. God is at work in every circumstance. Isaiah announced a messianic hope. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Bringing salvation, Isaiah 51. Forgiveness and healing, Isaiah 35. The resurrection from the dead. Death will be destroyed, Isaiah 26. Isaiah announced the coming of a king. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All of these texts that I've read from Isaiah are fodder for huge sermons. You could, you could find all kinds of information, all kinds of inspiration to talk about. And just, just a side note, he says the increase of his government. The government of God is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is increasing. You know, I found something out the other day about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God wait, is waiting on my heart to respond. And I'm sitting in a restaurant or I'm, you know, at work. That's how the kingdom of God explodes into the present, that my heart responds to it. And Isaiah says there's going to be an increase of the presence of the kingdom. There's an increasing amount of his presence in the world. The world is, is uh, he's coming. He will remove conflict in his creation, Isaiah 11. No more, t- more tears, no more suffering, no more famine, no more death, no more di- disease. Isaiah announced the coming of peace. Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus will be the prince of peace. Soon we will enter into the time of year that our hearts will turn to the thoughts of Christmas and all that accompanies that. It's a time when the whole world thinks and yearns for peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I was born in 1949 in the wake of World War II. My father was a part of the great generation. I was a toddler during the Korean conflict. That was the undeclared war, the forgotten war. I grew up under the shadow of the nuclear mushroom cloud. I remember uh, that we used to have these air raid drills at school, and they would taught us how to duck and cover, you know. 
And to this day, when I hear a siren, it just, I, it was, it really impacted my childhood. Those were the years of the Soviet Union and pictures of Nikita Khrushchev sitting at a desk at the United Nations, pounding his shoe on the desk saying, we will bury you. He was talking about us. The Cold War was a term coined in my childhood. Nuke was the flash word. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. I remember as a 13-year-old standing around the kitchen table with my mom and dad and my two older brothers, making a plan for escape from Peoria if war broke out. Now, that's kind of a tough thing for a 13-year-old to deal with. I remember my older brother had uh, his driver's license, and so my dad told him, said, now, you get the car and you gather the kids if I can't get here, and you head for Missouri. Of course, we know Missouri is the safest place to be here, right? Well, that's actually because my grandparents lived in Missouri, and they were going to go down to the farm down there. Nuclear confrontation, eyeball to eyeball. We learned the name Fidel Castro. That became a, a word. In fact, I was watching a program the other night. I don't mean to belabor this point, but they actually, there actually was a, a, a Soviet submarine off the coast of Florida that was out of communication with uh, their Soviet Union. And U.S. destroyers were just pounding them with uh, uh, um, death charges. And as far as they knew, they were at war. And they actually prepared the launch codes to launch ICBMs on the United States. And this one commander refused. He said, we're not going to do that. In fact, Fidel Castro had even asked Nikita Khrushchev if we could have a first strike against the United States. Khrushchev said, are you crazy? You will never have an island anymore after that. War was something that I grew up with. Well, uh, and, and conflict? It was my freshman year in Mr. Hoyt's algebra class on the afternoon of November 22, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was shot. School was dismissed, and we mourned as a nation. I was a high school senior in 1967 with my new football letter jacket when I sat with my mother and listened to an audio tape from my older brother from Vietnam. And it went on and on and on. Gulf War I, liberation of Kuwait. I was driving in my Dodge Dakota pickup on my way to Pekin to pick up some replacement windows that I was putting my house on the morning of September 11, 2001. I went home and watched the news coverage of the trade towers cascading into the streets of Manhattan in a huge billowing smoke of gray. And on and on and on it goes. War against the Taliban, hunt for Osama, Gulf War II, invasion of Iraq, WMDs, Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, Israeli, Hamas. I'm tired of war. I'm not a pacifist. But somewhere in our history, the desire for peace has been quenched. Yet the words of Isaiah declares this. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. How did Isaiah respond to this seminal moment in his life, this iconic vision? Well, let's look again at chapter 6 as I conclude. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, or he was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I know that God is high and lifted up. I know that God is 
holy. I know that God sits on a throne, but I also know that God is not unreachable. I want to be amazed by God again. I want to see breakthrough in people's lives. The last six months of my pastorate, through these two dear people in our church, the lady was diagnosed with liver cancer. And for six months, I would go over to St. Francis, I think it was Forest Park Center where the cancer patients were. And for six months, we prayed for her and prayed for her and did everything we knew how to do. And I was there at the last moment of her life when she breathed her last. I want to see breakthrough again in people's lives. So Isaiah was confronted by God, but Isaiah also confessed to God. He said, I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among the people with filthy lips. The King James Version said, I am undone. Sometimes I feel undone when I'm in the presence of God. Sometimes I think I got my life all buttoned up and all together. But when, when the presence of God comes, all of that seems to fall away. It all seems to come down to nothing. Remember when Peter was in the boat with Jesus and they caught all the fish? Simon Peter looks at Jesus and says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Sometimes it's that way when you're in the presence of God. Isaiah not only confessed, but God provided a way for Isaiah's cleansing. The scripture tells us, without going into it, that the the, uh, angel brought a coal and touched it to his lips and said, your sin is forgiven, your guilt is gone, it's been removed. Isaiah God provided a way for Isaiah's cleansing to do what he'd call him to do. Now, I'm going to make a statement that I'm a little shaky on because I I came from a holiness Pentecostal background. Holiness Pentecostalism is based upon, your holiness is based upon what you don't do. You don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go out with girls that do. But I'd like to make this statement because I think I'm on solid ground. I don't think that I'm going to become more holy than I am at this moment. Now, I can be more devout. I can have greater attention to what God is doing in my life. But in the words of the old hymn, this is what I believe. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Isaiah was confronted with the majesty of God. He had to confess his failure before God, but he received cleansing from God. He was also commissioned by God. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And I don't think he said it like that. Isaiah said, here. The response was not, he was not telling God where he was. It wasn't a statement of location. God knew where he was. It was about being in a place in your life, a a point of arrival, growing spiritually. Spiritual growth is like waking up. I uh, I don't know where I got this this phrase. I I find a lot of that in my life. I come across sentences and phrases. I love the turn of a phrase. But, But it says like this, spiritual growth is like waking up and then waking up again and waking up again. You see, Spiritual growth goes on and on and on. And and Isaiah says, here I am. 
We grow in our calling. We grow in the things that God is working on in our lives. Isaiah then said, I. A personal response. I heard someone say the other day, be yourself because everybody else is taken. It was a personal response. Isaiah said, I. There's a lot in that little word of I. Finally, he said, send me. He was talking about purpose. Place, personal, and purpose. Isaiah, when he said, send me, he he knew what that meant. Sending has power in it. Isaiah had to sit down and analyze who he was and what God had put in his life. One of the, one of the most important things we can do as a follower of Christ is to understand what he has gifted us with, what he's placed within our lives, and how he wants to exercise that in our lives. That, I mean, isn't that the quest that we all have? Finding out who we are and where we're going. I've often said, I can't wait till I get to heaven till I find out, so I can find out who I really am. You know, the Bible says that Jesus went there to prepare a place for me, so evidently he's got an understanding of what that is too. I wondered last week as I was reading through this vision again if Isaiah was the only one seeing this. Now, I have no way, to, I have no way of, of, of proving that. I have no way of knowing if he was the only one seeing this iconic vision, but he saw it. And... I simply want to be someone today that is available, available for God to use. I remember a guy said to me once, Tony, you'd be a good little preacher if you got away from those notes. We had preachers that could preach off the back of a matchbook. That would, they were right, you know. Of course, the louder they were, the more credible they were, you know. I don't want to be a good little preacher. I just want to be available. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father God, I just uh, thank you for just helping me. Thank you for helping us. And God, the word for us today, you just want us to be available, open before you, ready, wherever, whatever, whenever, just to open our hearts to you.